Three scriptures to begin with. First one, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then you have Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then you have Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, or Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And with that, you have the beginning of what's normally called the three synoptic gospels. We'll talk about that in a little while. But you see the difference. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Mark starts with, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news. Luke says, I'm trying to put things in a carefully ordered way in order that you may know that this comes from eyewitnesses and it is an accurate account of the stories that you have heard to either a friend uh, or to a, a, a group called Theophilus. Um, what brings us here, we've completed the Old Testament and... We've completed a book that is split into different areas. There's the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Law, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. We didn't take a look a lot at the poetry. Uh, if I do this another time, I think I'm going to spend a class on that. But our, our, our book doesn't even spend much time on the poetry. That's too bad, personal preference. Uh, wisdom literature, and then the prophets, the history, major, and minor prophets. And so when you hear them, uh, or in the New Testament, talk about the law and the prophets, they're talking about the whole Old Testament. Um, like Jesus says, this is a summary of the law and the prophets, the two great commandments. He's saying that's, that's a summary of the whole Old Testament. All the books, 39 books that are in there. Uh, we've been looking at the theme of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And that has been a consistent theme. And every section we've gone to and we've done more historical, at least the book does more of the historical sections, the author comes back to that understanding God's people and God's place under God's ruling. Whether it be the uh, paradise of the garden or whether it's the perversion of the garden and of paradise and kingdom to a promised kingdom and a partial kingdom, finally to a prophesied kingdom, you have this consistent theme and it is a theme of the scriptures, the kingdom of God. Now, you may notice in the king in Matthew, if you've if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, 
you never see the term kingdom of God. That's because the Jews never flippantly or in any way use the term God. Therefore, Matthew, being good Jew, writing to Jews, said, kingdom of heaven. Yeah, and now in our day and age, there are people who say, well, some gospels are talking about a kingdom of God. Matthew is talking about a kingdom of heaven. They must be different. No. It's just two ways of explaining the same thing. So now we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When we do, we're turning from the promised kingdom of the 39 books to the fulfillment kingdom. And, and again, as I mentioned this morning, uh, when Peter begins his sermon to Pentecost to explain to a, Jew, a Jew, Jewish audience what's going on, he quotes, quotes Joel 2:28 in the last days. And he says, we are in the last days. It's too bad that in our day and age, that's been corrupted into thinking that's a time way over here, yet to come. No, no, no. From Pentecost all the way to the return of Christ, that's the last days. It is the age of fulfillment. Previous time was the former days. We are now in the last days. It's the older covenant and the newer covenant. The promised covenant and the fulfillment of the covenant. Those are the two ways. So we have one Bible simply in two different sections. Um, and the New Testament is going to expand upon the old and make it complete. Again, I would remind you, yes, we're using this book and you do some of your homework from this book. But my my goal is not only to use this book, but to look at the books within those sections to give you an idea of what they say. So we spent a whole class last time on minor prophets because most people never read the minor prophets. Now you all know the minor prophets, right? Malachi, the Italian minor prophet. <laughs> now you, you have somewhat of an understanding of them. What we're going to do today is going to take two things. We're going to take a look at the intertestamental, inter, intertestamental period. Normally something that is ignored in study of the Bible. But you've got 400 years of history between Malachi and John the Baptizer. And in those 400 years, some exciting things happen that help you to understand what's taking place in the Gospels and why they take place. And so part of the goal I have today is to help bring out some of these things in order that you can maybe have a better appreciation of what the New Testament is talking about, and especially the Gospels. Okay? And if this is not new stuff to you and you already know this stuff, raise your hand and you can leave. Nobody raise their hand. Okay, we're good. <laughs> you, you have to stay there. <laughs> We start with Malachi, last prophetic book about 430 B.C. You've had the return from the exile. They have rebuilt the temple and the city. And yet there is a consistent rebellion by the people. It doesn't take more than a couple decades till Malachi has to come 
and chastise the people for turning around. I mean, you would have thought that having been in exile for at least around 70 years and finally graciously brought back, the people would say, we may, our forefathers made a mistake. We're not going to make the same mistake. No, they made the same mistake. Uh, shows a persistent nature of, uh, of our sin. Uh, if you look at Malachi, you'll see that the, the prophetic books end with a promise. In Malachi 3, it's a promise of one who is to come who is like a refiner where he writes, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. You know, that's just packed with things. I'll send a messenger. He'll prepare the way for me that I'm coming. And the messenger that come, he, he is coming uh, and in whom will be your delight. So when Jesus comes, or when John the Baptist baptizer comes on the scene, people are excited because they've heard this prophecy. And they said, well, if he's coming, then the Messiah, the Lord God, must be coming soon. And this just adds to what was at that time a growing anticipation because of the 400 years and all that had taken place in 400 years. I exercise that 400 years because think back. Here it is, 2018. You go back to 1618. That's 400 years. The pilgrims had not even gotten to Plymouth Rock. There were uh, there were Native Americans who lived here. The Spanish had been on this continent for a while. Other things had happened. But basically, it's in the last 400 years that all that we know about America has developed, good or bad. That's what we're dealing with. Yeah. And sometimes we forget how small that period really is, or how large it is from uh, being removed from our forefathers. I, I've told you before, I grew up in western Pennsylvania. We moved to New York City, Queensboro, New York City. I, my candidating pre preaching was in a church that was there before the Revolutionary War. In fact, the British used it as the stables of their horses during the war while they were camped out in, in Queens on, on Long Island. And I walk in and I'm going, man, this thing was here before even Pittsburgh was a dream of anybody. I'm going, this is, this is what history's like. Okay. And then you have Malachi 4, 1 to 6, which is the, uh, another prophecy, anticipation of it. And we'll just turn, go down to verse 5. Behold, I will send you Eli, Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of, of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And you may remember 
that one of the questions put to Jesus and to John the Baptist was, are you Elijah? Are you the great prophet? Elisha either returned from the dead or Elisha come back because this prophecy had been sitting in their thoughts and it's part of the anticipation. If they would say yes, they're going, oh, wow, we're in the, we're in the uh, prime time. So, but in those 400 years, people existed under foreign power, powers with some adjusted adjustment, but basically they were never their own people. Those who were in what we would call today Palestine. Um, and all of that affected the time of Christ and the apostles. So all they had was a promise of the prophets and a hope that Messiah, an anointed one, would come. So I'm going to, we're going to take a look at the foreign powers because I study this, I find it fascinating. Only not just for history. Now, I studied this when I was in high school because we had to study ancient history. We had to. We didn't have a choice. It was not an elective. And I said, who cares about the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans? That was thousands of years ago. And then all of a sudden it hits you. Yeah, but the Greeks had philosophy, which we still deal with. And the Romans had a, a form of government that, that ruled the land. And Babylonians had their own ways. And, you know, for, for some of you who were born much more recently... The rise of Iran, Iran, Iraq, which is the Babylonian Empire. And, you know, that is, is history coming alive. I find it fascinating because you're going to see things that help you understand your New Testament, especially the gospel. So let's go through. First, you have Persia. If you turn, or as you turn, to Second Chronicles... The last chapter. Verse 22. When you reach there, you have reached the end of the Hebrew Bible. Because the way they put their books together are different than ours. Well, you know, we end with Malachi because we want, we're, we're so smart and we want things all in nice, neat packages. Major prophets, minor prophets. We want the wisdom literature in between, and then we get the history. And we add uh, post-exilic history after this, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, uh, Esther. But when you, read the, when you got to this section in the Hebrew Bible, at what we would call the front of our Bible, because they wrote from, they wrote uh, not right to left, but left to right. You would read this. And now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stir stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea, Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Last words of the, of the Bible, Old Testament. Let him go up. And that begins a whole process of resettling the land. Um, some return to Jerusalem. Not too many. A lot of people, a lot of the Jews stayed in Persia or because the uh, Assyrians and Babylonians were very good at disrupting any kind of rebellion. They would take groups and spread them all over their conquered area. So they'd be up in Turkey. They'd be down in what would be Saudi Arabia, even into Egypt. You would have colonies of them. And most of them liked where they're living. So they said, why should we go back to a place that was destroyed? I mean, 70 years. We have our homes, we have our gardens, we have our strawberries. It takes a long time to grow strawberries. Why would I want to go home and, and not go someplace else? So they didn't. But because of that, and again, you see the providence of God, everywhere in the Mediterranean area, you had groups of Jews who lived there, who read, studied, memorized their scriptures. Uh, really helps when you get to the book of Acts and Paul decides the call, here's a call of God to go out to the Gentiles. And every city he goes into, what, you've, you've read Acts, what does he do when he goes into a city? The synagogue. And where did the synagogue come from? These people who stayed there. These people who disobeyed Cyrus. Let him go up. And they stayed where they were. But it gave him an entrance into that city. A place where he could begin to preach the gospel. And so he was preaching not only to people who had a Jewish background, but Gentile believers. Those who were... Uh, they they never had converted, but they were God-fearing individuals. That's the way the scripture talks about it. So, you, you know, you see God automatically in that Persian setting up the scene for something that's going to happen 400-some years later, 500, 600 years later. Sure. Uh, because Ezra and the, the post-exilic come before Chronicles. Remember you have First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles are a theological book. They explain the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, in all of its glory. You, will, you basically never see anything about David that's not good. And now they have to, and they don't even deal with Israel in the breakoff. They simply look at the uh, kings of Judah, southern kingdom. And it's basically recounting how God had given them the land and faithfully given us. It's, it's in an essence, because of the genealogies, it is the summary of all the books that came before it. So, 
Ezra and Nehemiah, they come after kings because they're part of that. Therefore, Ezra begins with a proclamation. How did these people get home from uh, Babylon, from Cyrus? Well, Cyrus said, go. Okay. Good question. Bad answer. No, good question. It, it's between Second Kings and First Chronicles. Yeah, they're in that. Okay. Then you have Greece. Of course, you have Alexander the Great, about 330 B.C., who comes rushing in, having gone over the Alps, he comes rushing in and takes over that whole Mediterranean area. Uh, within a couple years, his, his army basically conquers that. It's an amazing... Uh, effect, an event, that somebody in that age without tanks and cars and could move that fast and conquer the people that quickly. Um, but what he does in doing that is he brings Hellenism, that is Greek culture, into the Middle East and North Africa. Remember this? This has basically been a um, Arabian country. It is Semitic in its background, they they used Hebrew, which if you look at it, looks like chicken scratch versus Greek that looks like English. Uh, it's, it's a whole new way of thinking in the Middle East than it was in Greece, but he conquers and he begins to build, bring in the Greek uh, influence. He brings in a common language. Greek became the language of the trade, just as... If you're flying an airplane, you have to know English. Because wherever you are in the world, they will contact you in English. And you can, you can reply in Russian, and they're going to say, what in the world was that? Because English is a common language of flight. Uh, they also brought in the philosophical, intellectual, and religious mindset. And so all these Arabic countries began to have to deal with Greek philosophy, Greek thinking. And it moved into the culture, and it changed the culture to some degree, uh, just the interaction with that. So all of a sudden, scholars knew about Plato and Aristotle and people like that, and they studied their ideas. And, you know, there's a, there is a big difference between the Greek and the... Uh, Mideast culture. Mideast thinks uh, of families. They think of wholeness. The Greek thinks in much more ordered ways. So uh, you, you have, you're making adjustments and you're thinking in new ways. For instance, the Greeks think of the human being as body and soul. There are two parts. The Hebrew thinks of the, the human being as body, soul, spirit, but they're a unit. They're not two separate parts put together. They are a unit. You cannot divide those two. So that begins to affect what takes place. So you have Egypt or Greece. And then you have Egypt with the Ptolemics or Ptolemics. Um, Alexander dies and 
four, four generals are given four areas. Uh, Turkey, the, well, let me see, you're looking at it this way. So it's Turkey all the way across even to India. You have Egypt. You have Greece itself, the country of Greece. And you have the, what would be the crescent, the uh, fertile plains up into those four generals. And each general developed its own uh, great city. Uh, Ptolemy is down here in Egypt, and he develops Alexandria. And it becomes a predominant city of Egypt and of that area. Uh, so uh, it's a major learning place. They had a library there that had books from all over the world. In fact, one of the horrendous things that happened I believe, it, I think it was when the barbarians took over Rome and they took over part of Egypt. They burnt the, the library. We lost all of, all of that. Um, in fact, you even find out that Alexandria was so predominant that it became one of the key cities of the early church. Augustine, early church fathers came from Alexandria. Uh, and some of it was, you know, not just simple Middle East, but North Africa, even into Libya and that country. And th this was one of the top areas. Um, in, uh, it, it, uh, he, he controlled Palestine under the early years of the second century B.C., the Jews continued with some freedom and religious worship, but all of a sudden, because they don't have a king, the high priest moves into the role of a ruler. So when you have Jesus come on trial, when they come to the Jews, they bring him to the high priest who has to, with the other priests, settle the issue and then send him on to, the, to their Roman conquerors. Um, that's why when Jesus was put on trial, he wasn't taken directly to the governor. The high priest acted as, almost as a governor. Uh, there were always pressures to adopt the Greek ways of life, which the Hebrews had to fight against. But you, you see the Greek ways of life moving into. I mean, if you have to know Greek and work with the Greeks to do any kind of business, that's going to have an influence upon you and how you operate. The Jewish, there was a, a developed a Jewish colony in a Alexandria. Uh, it was filled with scholars and people. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the Jews went there. And out of that, there came what we call the Septuagint. You may be f familiar to it. It's the three letters X, L, 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 X. Roman numerals. 50, 60, 70. And it was 70 scholars who took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek. They did it partially because the Greek culture was there. They had to communicate. communicate. Uh, they did it because they wanted to teach the Bible to the Gentiles. 
and therefore they had to have it. Such as uh, Wycliffe Bible translators will go into an area, discover a predominant language, and then they take the Greek and Hebrew Bible and turn it into that language. They don't go in with our ESV English translations, try to teach them English, and then teach them the Bible. They, they help concrete uh, their, their language and put it together. So that's what they were doing. And the, the Septuagint becomes one of the main Bibles of the people of God. If you were in Galilee and Judea, you would know Hebrew. But anywhere else, you knew Greek better than you knew Hebrew. Now, that doesn't mean that in the synagogue they used the Septuagint, because they, but they would teach their children. Their boys had to memorize, learn Hebrew, and be able to use the Hebrew Bible. But they had the, the Septuagint with them. It's also one of the reasons why when you're reading the Old Testament, the New Testament and you see a quote from the Old Testament that doesn't look like the original quote, that's because they're quoting from the Septuagint. And anytime you go from one language to another, the quote will change because that's part of the nature of translation. And so there have been Bible scholars who said, well, Paul obviously had to change what the Bible said. No, he's just using a different translation. It's like if you use the New American Standard alongside the English Standard, you're going to have changes, differences. If you use the message, you are really going to have differences. <laughs> and I'll say, don't use the message. Uh, it's simply a commentary. Um, you also know that it was to Alexandria that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus escaped in Matthew 2. You remember the angel came to Joseph and said to him, get up, take your, your wife and child to Egypt. And they went down to a colony there, which was Alexandria. And they spent some time, I, uh, I think a year or so, down there. Why? Well, or I should ask, how could they do it? Well, the wise men had come and given them gold. They had more than enough money to make the trip. Secondly, they went to an area in which they would be very familiar. It's like if you wanted to move to Paris, you would be looking for a English area because then you can communicate until you learn French. Uh, they would live in an area that would have a synagogue and they could worship God. And they escaped to it. It's also one of the ways in, in, in that same passage, uh, Matthew writes that uh, when they left Egypt to come back, he said, he quotes and where it says, and Israel left, came out of Egypt. Again, a quote to the people of God in the Exodus, but applying it to Jesus. In essence saying, Jesus is the new Israel that came out of Egypt. So you see the providence of God, a colony that's just right for the Son of God to go to, 
providentially fulfilling scripture and giving them an opportunity to be safe from Herod. Then you have Syria or the Seleucids. Again, another general of Alexander. He, he was the one who ruled from Turkey to over to Babylon and beyond. Uh, his ca capital was Antioch of Syria, which is up in the corner where the Mediterranean makes its bend to come down that eastern coast. Uh, and again, Syria, Antioch, becomes one of the key central cities of the church. And it was developed for out of that time. Uh, now, also you have from there oh, some events that take place that help to shape the Jewish culture. You have the ascension of Antiochus IV in seven, 175 B.C. And this was really a difficult time for the Jews. Uh, one of the reasons why Antiochus came down into Babylon was he was feeling the threat of Rome. And he said, I've got to protect my southern border. So I'm going to move it all the way down as far as I can go. And he takes over Palestine and Jerusalem. And he steps up the Hellenization of the area, which some of the Jews accepted. They said, well, we're captive people. We've got to give in. Others rebelled against it. And so in their resistance and their rebellion, Antiochus IV causes a reign of terror. He comes in, he burns the scrolls, he says no more Sabbath, no more circumcision, signs of the covenant. Violators were put to death, and then he does the most despicable thing. He desecrates the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar. The second temple. You know, pigs were animals that were uh, abhorrent to the Jews. And so he desecrates it, and the people rise up. You have him. Oh, he knew exactly what he was doing. He says, you know, you Jews going to rebel against me. You watch what I do. I mean, when you got the army and you got the rule, you do what you want. He says, I'm going to desecrate your temple. Uh, many have taken this as what Daniel was talking about, uh, Daniel 11, the abomination of desolation. That that abomination of desolation, again, is not something that's happening in our future. It happened with Antiochus IV when he, uh, he uh, did that to the temple. And it's, I think, what Jesus was referring to when he was referring to the abomination of the desolation of the, of the temple during under Rome at 70 A.D. Because they did very similar things. Uh, they were really upset at the Jewish people. They said, well, we're going to get back at you. You have this religion, you have these rites, and we're going to destroy them. And we're going to destroy the place in which you were. Now, Antiochus never destroyed the temple, but he did create an uproar. 
And so you have a rebellion that increased under Matthias, who was a priest, and his son, Judas Maccabeus. You may have heard somewhere of the Maccabean Revolt. Judas has a great name. His name means Judas the Hammer. I mean, he should have been a Marvel comic. You should be seeing a movie come out on Judas the Hammer. He and Thor would have a great time. Okay. Uh, they retook the temple in, six, in 164 B.C. And they rededicated it in what became the Feast of, Han of Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication. And it was during that time when they were rededicating it, they didn't have enough light or oil for the lamps. They had enough for one day. But they had to have seven days of the light burning. So they lit it. Day one goes by, it's not used up. Day two goes by, not used up. Finally, day seven goes by when they could make new oil. And that original one-day supply lasted for seven days. And it, uh, it was burned into the, um, the minds and the hearts of the, Pharise of the Jews. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you have Jesus going to the temple at the Feast of, of Dedication. Which if you're reading John 10, you look at it and say, hold it. I read Leviticus. Where is that feast? Well, it's not there. It's because it's, Han it's Hanukkah. And in that time, you have the uh, people, the Jews, settling the shape for the second temple. They, they had already made the second temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, but now they expanded it and they made the shape of what it was like, although its building would come later. And during this time, you have some parties within the Jewish community arising. These are not parties like you think of. It's the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, okay? Oh, man. First is the Pharisees. Um, and if you've read the New Testament, the Gospels, you've heard of the Pharisees. They were the purest. In fact, Pharisee is a word that means separate. They separated themselves from anything that was Grecian, anything that was non-Jewish. And they were purists of the place where they were going to observe the law to the best of their ability plus. And so when they're, they're trying to say, let's not violate the law that we have in, in uh, the first five books or in Deuteronomy. Let's not do that by putting a fence around it. You have the law, and let's put another fence around it. So as long as you don't violate the fence, you don't violate the law. And they had all these silly things, like on a Sabbath. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath and not violate the Sabbath. So a Sabbath journey was a quarter of a mile. Most of us have already violated that law because we went a quarter of a mile. You couldn't walk more than that far on the Sabbath. Well, unless you did something. 
unless you took a rock from your property and put it in your pocket, because then you were never more than a quarter mile from your property, no matter how far you walked. You see what legalism does? Well, they developed all these laws. And it's one of the reasons that Jesus was so upset at them. You tithe mint, and yet you do not do the weightier laws of mercy. The Pharisee comes and stands up into the, in the temple, and he stands up and looks up to the heavens and says, Lord, see what a good boy I am. I've done all these things. Aren't you proud of me? And next to him is a beggar who won't even look up to heaven. He says, hey, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The one who ought to have been, the one who was most humbled, is the most proud. And the, word, the one who recognized his sinfulness was the most humble. And that's why Jesus said, that man, the beggar, went away justified while the other one was not. That was the problem. And this, this is why you have this consistent conflict between the Pharisees and with Jesus. Because Jesus says the weightier matters of the law is mercy. And it, the law only shows the surface, but also gives room underneath the surface. If you are angry, you have committed murder in your heart. If you say to someone, get lost, it's like saying, die. And you've committed, you've violated the commandment that you are not to call, not to murder. And, you know, it just, it aggravated them again and again to the point where they said, we got to get rid of this guy. Because he's not like us, pure. It's even Jesus who said, unless your righteousness is more than that of the Pharisees. You will not see the kingdom of God. And people go, what? I can't be more righteous than these people. And the point he was making about the, the depth of the righteousness that is needed. The second one is the zealots. This is an armed resistance. These are the, they were totally secular. They had lost their roots with the Old Testament and their Judaism, they were the terrorists. They had no compulsion with going around with knives inside of their coats, and if they saw somebody from another country, they would just knife them in the back and doing it in a crowd and then walk on as if nothing happened. Uh, they especially grew up with the Romans, but they were those who were... Uh, fighting for what they thought was political freedom um, by the son of, of uh, uh, by the Maccabeans, uh, Jonathan and Simon. And finally they got to have Judea became independent for a while. That leaves the Hasmonean dynasty, which is a, a Jewish ruling, Jonathan Maccabeus assumes the office of high priest, even though he's not in the line of Zadok. They couldn't prove that he was really priestly material. Um, yeah. Conservative Jews revolt from this because they say that's not right. 
and they go from Jerusalem down into the desert and they develop what's called the Qumran community and they give themselves the name the Essenes, the separate ones. The, uh, they really looked at themselves as a true Israel. They live a monastic life. Uh, they are waiting the coming of the Messiah. They are uh, cataloging scroll upon scroll upon scroll of the scriptures in uh, the Hebrews language. They are developing their own uh, their own community and way of life. Uh, and we what we owe to them is what and when the uh, in 1947, there was found in what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls because their community was outside the Dead Sea Scrolls. And all of a sudden, we had scrolls of the Old Testament from much closer to its original than we ever had before. And it's because they put them in pots in, in the uh, caves and they, stay, they uh, were able to stay there 19... 2,000 years. So, and out of that, uh, out of that time period, you also had what were called the Sadducees. This is the aristocratic group. They were sought, they sought political stability. Uh, they only accepted the Pentateuch as authoritative, and they rejected some of the other doc, major doctrines of the Old Testament. For instance, the resurrection. You may remember in his last week, Jesus was confronted by some Sadducees and came up to him and said, Lord, give us a, a, a teaching on this. Uh, there was a man who married a woman they had no children. And in Levitical law, then a brother was to take the wife and have a child for his deceased brother says, well, this happened seven times, and they had no children. Whose husband will she be in the resurrection? And, you know, Jesus looks at him and said, you don't even believe in a resurrection. <laughs> but he answers the question. Now, there will be no, heaven, there will be no marriages in heaven, uh, no, no children produced. He says, you, you are wrong because you... Uh, do not believe in the resurrection, but remember God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of those who are dead, not just those who are living right now. There will be a resurrection. But that's where their question came from, where were they trying to trap him? And finally, what you have developed in this time is the Sanhedrin, which is a council of 70 made up from these different groups. And they kind of over, ruled over the Jewish people at that time. So you have Jesus, when he was arrested, taken to the high priest. Because the high priest was a Jewish ruler. And then he's taken to the Sanhedrin that has a combination of all three of these and tried there. And then finally turned over to Rome because the Jews under Roman authority had no opportunity, no ability to kill anybody, Rome had to say, crucify him. And you see, all these things are developing during this time and just putting it together. Finally, you have Rome. 
Uh, Rome comes in, takes a whole Mediterranean area, ruling by might from uh, Britain. Well, Britain would be up here, all the way around and into North Africa and over to uh, Babylon. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. It brought safe travel and wonderful roads. It brought a rule for all this area so you didn't have conflicting nations or conflicting peoples. They all knuckled under to Rome. And you have some of the predominant characters of the New Testament. Herod the Great was king who came in about 40 B.C. He is not Jewish, although Rome made him a, a king of Israel. He is from the line of Esau, Edom. He was a proselyte, but you know the Jews themselves would never have picked him. And he was one mean dude. I mean, there are times he showed madness. He thought his wife and a couple of his sons were, and brothers were uh, revolting against him, and he had them killed, his own wife. I know there's a few guys that like to do that. Now, no, that's not any here. <laughs> so, but the, he was just a madman. Um, he did some great things. He was very efficient in his rule. He built, uh, ca built uh, towns and buildings. He refurbished the temple and made it one of the great wonders of the world. And yet he was feared and he was fearful. So when the wise men come to him in Matthew 2 and say, where is he born king of the Jews? And Herod goes, I haven't had a baby. He says, find him for me so I may come worship him. Deceitful. He had no sense of wanting to worship. And in doing that, they found out where he was. He said, Come on back and tell me. And when they didn't, he went down and killed all the babies two years and under, which tell us something about the age of Jesus. Now, Bethlehem was not a big town, so it wasn't a lot of children, but it's the killing of the innocents. And that's you get a picture of what Herod was like. So at the time of Jesus' birth, you had Caesar Augustus, the ruler of Rome, Herod the Great and Judah. At, during his ministry, you have Tiberius ruling the empire, Pontius Pilate the perfect in Judah, and Hera, Herod Anibus in Galilee. So you have to remember, Herod of Matthew 2 is not the same Herod when Jesus was doing his ministry. Okay. Uh, also around this time, you have one of the most famous Jewish historians, Josephus who chronicled a lot of the non-biblical cooperative material. He's the one who tells us of the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus' history is wonderful to read if you have some free time. It's, it's a thick book. It's, it's big. But that. Then you have, secondly, two writings. The Apocryphal and the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, these are collections of Jewish writings from the Second Temple. 
The Apocrypha is included in the Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox Bibles and is sometimes read by Anglicans or Episcopalians. Basically what it is, it's, it's considered extra canonical because the Jews never recognized it as part of the 39, the original canon. Um, and it, it has a lot of great information because it tells you things about what were happening, what the people were doing. So it's worth reading for historical. But you also have the pseudepigraphic grapha, which by the name says false inscription or false title. This is common back then. It was written using the name of a famous person in order to get it published. Uh, but we have in our Bible a quote from one of these called the Book of Enoch, Jude 14, where it says, Enoch said this, and he quotes the book, which have got some to wonder, well, if he quotes a book, isn't this uh, useful to have in our canon? It says, no, it's just like Paul quoting a, a Greek philosopher. No, he's simply quoting what they had to say. It would also have been a book that the people would have known about. So you have uh, the book of Enoch and Moses and Noah and Ezra. They never wrote these, but it's a form of style. We, we have something similar to it where we have ghost writers for famous authors. Where they, the ghost writers write the book, the famous authors will read it over and approve it but the author's name gets on it and this, the ghost writer is kind of left out into the breeze. Yeah, yeah. And they put his name on because it would never sell by their name. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's just non non canonical but very informative information about those four hundred years. Okay, um, you guys have any questions or anything? Yeah. Uh, the Sadducees, yes. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, the Sadducees only accepted the Torah. And I, I think maybe because it was written by Moses and Moses was a great leader. But they would not accept the authority of the others. It's, it's like, well, it's, it's like the Apocrypha. You can buy Bibles with the Apocrypha in it. It's not the inspired, authoritative Word of God. But it's nice reading. Especially if you haven't gotten to sleep in the middle of the night. No, not but it's it's inf informative, and they they would not jettison the rest of the Old Testament, but they would just say it's not as important 
nor does it carry the authority of the Torah. I I would think no. I don't think Jesus would put up with somebody who murdered other people. Um, but you see who he pulls his disciples from. Fisherman, tax collector, who is a Rome, basically a Roman agent. Um, other individuals in different ways. But he pulls out a zealot, a terrorist, and says, come be my disciple. And he trains him in that way. Now, we don't hear too much about Simon after Pentecost, but he was one of the the, uh, ele- the original 11. Well, the, yeah, the Old Testament scriptures were closed around 200 B.C. So they, they decided these 39 books are our are, are Bible, the scriptures. The church merely accepted that and said, okay, we recognize these books as written by apostles or under the tutelage of apostles. And that's that's one of the reasons why Jesus could talk about the scriptures of, of the Old Testament. I mean, there was a set book. Paul could say to Timothy, bring the scrolls, which would normally mean copies of the Old Testament to me. Um, when he says all scripture is inspired or all scripture is breathed out by God, he's not talking New Testament. He's talking the Old Testament which really ought to give problems to people who think that the Old Testament is inferior. It's not at all. And, you know, that's the book that when when Peter or Paul went into a town and went to a synagogue, they pulled out the Old Testament, canonical Old Testament, and would deal with the gospel from those books. They would preach it along with what they know about the life of Jesus. There are people like that? Uh, I don't know. I, I know there are people who believe the New Testament is the only book you ought to read. Forget the Old Testament. I haven't heard the other, because otherwise, where would you know anything about Jesus? Except at least from the four Gospels and from the writing of the Apostles. Um, there are those like Mark uh, Martian who didn't like the God of the Old Testament thought he was just a God of anger and wrath and cut out the Old Testament and cut out major parts of the New Testament like Matthew and Mark and some of the writings of Paul because they mentioned the God of the Old Testament. Marcion, like Luke, up to a certain extent. I mean, he was the one who had a knife and he really cut that baby up. 
I think it was around um, around the time they were settling the canon of the Old Testament. So it'd be around 200 BC. Don't hold me on that. I don't remember ever reading anything where he quoted the Apocrypha because he basically stayed with the Old Testament. That, that was the authoritative okay. word. Yeah. In in one way in one way or the other, yeah, you could find it. Yeah. Because they have accepted it as as an as a teaching along with the, what we would call the canonical Old Testament. They they decided they were worth putting in the Bible. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Catholic Church likes the, the apocryphal because it helps or it helped to define some of their rituals and the way they do things. So, yeah, usually the apocryphal comes after, in an English Bible, um, Malachi. And it's right before the New Testament. And they'll say this is the apocryphal. But for some, like the Roman Catholic Church, it carries the same weight as the other 39, or the 39 books of the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, I just wouldn't memorize and quote it. Sure. I mean, it's like reading Josephus, the historian, and you get a, a broad overview of what was taking place. Josephus has never been considered authoritative, i.e. in the sense of the scriptures, but he gives such a good background. You almost have to know it to know what took place. You have to you have to read the section on the destruction of Jerusalem to see how horrendous it was when Rome came in and sacked the city and tore down the temple. They burnt it and then they thought, well, there was gold in there, therefore it probably went into the bricks. And because it's in the bricks, we want that gold. So they tore apart all the blocks and everything. And, you know, the only thing you have is a wailing wall, which was not even part of the temple. It was part of the wall around the temple. I mean, and just the atrocities that the Romans did, you know, that brings home when Jesus says, 
there never has been such a horrendous thing take place. That's a paraphrase. And you can see why he weeps over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Because he has a vision, I think, of what it's going to be like. This beautiful city up in flames. And absolutely destroyed. Yep. It's a translation. Jesus would have been familiar with both of them. Because he lived in Galilee and Judea, he would have used a Hebrew Bible. Okay, because that's what they had in the synagogues. And that's what they would have memorized. Septuagint is much more uh, for when Paul was out doing his missionary work. And he goes into a city in a synagogue. They would have a Hebrew scroll, because that was mandatory but they would understand it in Greek. So he could use the Septuagint. And when he would write to a city or to a people who were Greek-speaking, he would quote the Septuagint because that's what they would be familiar to. The Greek on the street would know the Septuagint. He didn't know Hebrew. Greek on the street. So, sometimes you come out with good things, don't you? You don't even know it. Greek on the street. <laughs> okay, let's get started into the Gospels. Um, let's just give an overview, and we'll pick up the Gospels in, uh, in two weeks. Uh, Y'all know there are four Gospels, <laughs> okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or better known in our family, is Mama Lucho. Mama Lucha. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, it has to be middle of Sunday afternoon. It's taken a while. Four Gospels are primarily biographies, but not biographies like we know them. I'm reading a biography of Ulysses S. Grant begins before his birth with his family. Takes us through his birth, his upbringing, West Point, uh, the trials, general in the, uh, general of the Civil War, president, and I'm now into the section of after his presidency. It's chronological. The uh, Gospels are what was called bios. And the, the word bios, we have biology, uses that word. And biology is the study of life. Okay? So what they were trying to do is write biographies that highlighted key teachings and events in the life of the people. And did not necessarily do it even chronologically. It was according to how they were trying to communicate to an audience. So they put it together in a way that met their author's purpose. Again, 
I read Matthew 1.1. He begins with a genealogy because he's writing to Jews. And what does he want them to do? This is the son of David. This is the son of Abraham. This is the Messiah. That's how he begins. Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and goes right into John the baptizer. Nothing about his birth. Nothing about his childhood. Luke, who's doing a more orderly account, starts at the announcing, announcement of John the baptizer through the birth of Christ, through his one, inc one or two incidences in his childhood, and finally gets into the ministry and does somewhat more of a chronological viewpoint there. Uh, they overlap in material. We call them syn synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they overlap in material. Um, synoptics from the word that watching, watching together, bringing together. They overlap in material, but they are telling the story of Jesus from an earth up uh, vision or uh, perception. Um, they allow the reader to be slowly sucked into who he is. So you start with this little baby who's born, who's been given the hint that he's a Messiah. But, you know, you really don't know until you get to the point where you have transfiguration and you have Peter's response at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then it moves into the crucifixion. And you're slowly, it's like a good novel that takes you along little by little and you can't put it down. It's 3 a.m. in the morning and you have to be up by 6, but you can't put it down. That's what the synoptics are about. Uh, but they bring a variety of insights into Jesus according to the audience to which they were writing. So, Matthew never discloses what are these feasts and what are these things he's talking about. Jewish customs. Why? His audience knew them. Luke writes and has to describe what he's talking about because it's a Greek culture. And they, they don't have that. It's not in their background. They didn't have to take Judaism 101 or the history of Judah, the history of Palestine. Uh, but ultimately, they've narrowed down to the cross and the resurrection and a little bit about the ascension. What they do is they, they pull you in to look at the reason why you need Christ and what he did in order to give you new life. Uh, John, on the other hand, is from heaven on down, right off the bat. In the beginning, sounds like Genesis, was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In a sense, like Genesis, before there was anything, Logos was and Logos was just as much God as God. I mean, that's heaven down. And then he goes on to tell story after story that shows you why Jesus is the Logos. 
And what does that mean? Even the word logos, uh, the word, it's a Greek philosophical term. And again, remember, there's that Greek influence around the whole Mediterranean Sea and even in within the synagogues. The word Greek uh, logos means reason, principle. Uh, we would think of word as an expression of who God is. And so John starts right away. This is reason. This is logic. This is an expression of who God is. Who? And gets right into Jesus. So, Acts is a little bit different. It's a legitimization document. That is, it's, it's, these were written to explain and show the legitimacy of something. And Acts was written to show. This is the early church. This is the journey it took from Jerusalem to Rome, where it ends. And this is why it is, how it is. This is the form of the Christianity, or though the form of Christianity was new, the faith of it was rooted in the promise and commandments of Israel. So I says, well, this doesn't look like anything we've seen before. Greek would say, and they would say, yeah, you're right, it's a new form. However, it's rooted in the Old Testament that you should know. Okay, So that's the kind of literature you're dealing with. Bios, a different kind of biography, and legitimization. You might even say that Luke has some of that legitimization in his writings, because how, how did he start his beginning? I'm writing an orderly, con uh, orderly uh, writing about the life of Jesus to show you who he was and why he is who he is so that you may know the eyewitnesses. I mean, imagine Luke. Luke was a doctor. And doctors normally are very good at getting to the source of something. They don't put Band-Aids on cancer. Okay, they go right after it. He went after prime sources. I'm sure Luke found Mary and said, what was it like when the angel came to you? That's why they would know the story. What was it like to give birth to the Son of God? What were those early years like? What was it like to be the mother of a perfect child? Oh, if we only had that opportunity. <laughs> And, you know, he would find all these, the background information and put it together. So I gave you a, a uh, chart that talks about why the four Gospels. Uh, on the left-hand side, you have each of the Gospel. Someone has put together that, you know, the Gospels really are f like four pillars that hold up the rest of the writings of the Apostles. And they are pillars in the sense that they draw from the Old Testament, but also help us to understand the history of, of the New Testament and of Jesus and the progression of who he is, of how you see him. So Old Testament history, Matthew is basically mosaic. He deals with the law. He deals with uh, the priestly part of Jesus. Mark deals with a king first section of Mark is Jesus the King. 
Uh, so he deals with the history. Luke talks more about Jesus in exile, a man in his own country and yet not appreciated in his own country. It's like the prophets who were never appreciated in their own time. And John looks at it, combines all of those three, but it's also talking about the new covenant. Again and again, you hear that term or the, the image of the covenant coming through John. Uh, they also show the New Testament history. Matthew talks, would, would show you some of the early church. Because we remember the church grew up in a Jewish culture before it was uh, thrust out into the world. And so you have the Jewishness of the, of the church. Uh, with Mark, because he wrote underneath the uh, authority of, of Peter, you would have a Petrine understanding of the work. And, you know, Peter really was the beginning of the church. And he helped get it set up. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, he was really saying, on Peter, I'm going to build my church. Now, you're not going to be the only rock. I will expand it. However, you are the that starter. Luke taught, is Pauline because Luke worked with Paul and John is all by himself um, looking at Jesus in Jerusalem. That's a clear image of what takes place. Jesus' ministry begins with him cleaning the temple uh, in, in John in Jerusalem. And then he comes back right at uh, Passover right at Palm Sunday, clean the temple again. In three years, it got corrupted again. And But in between, you have Jesus coming down to the temple again and again and again, Jerusalem. Uh, if you look at Revelation 4, you're given the faces of four cherubim. cherubim. Um, I think I mixed up the two. Matthew and Luke ought to be uh, changed. Matthew is much a look at the lion, a king of David, and a kingly dynasty. Mark is one dealing with uh, the uh, Jesus as as the servant, just as an ox is a servant to a farmer. Luke has him. Well, even the Luke and John could be changed too. Luke, you see the humanity of Jesus. And he shows him to be a man. John is so heavenly minded, he's, he looks at Jesus like an eagle. Now, someone would also say, well, Matthew looks like the ox because of his priestly sacrifices. Mark looks at a lion because he's dealing with a Roman empire. Luke looks at the eagle because he was an unclean animal and Jesus was considered as an unclean animal, an unclean man in his own time. Pharisees kept going on. Why are you dealing with these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these sinners? If you were like us, you'd stay away from them. You know, he touches a leper, which made him unclean in the Pharisee's mind. And finally, John, you do see the, the man Jesus. There's also progression. 
you go from Jesus the Jewish Messiah, the law, to Jesus the crucified Messiah in action, Jesus a universal Savior to the Gentiles, and Jesus the Word made flesh, which is all of history and all of life. Or you can look at this as the four human ages of the Old Testament. First you have Abraham and the tribe. That's Matthew. Then you have the temple. Uh, that's Mark. You have Luke, Greek-Roman Greek aspect of it. And finally you have John, which is a future-oriented part. Now these these are interesting ways to look at it, but you think... You think about it and you see maybe some parallels that are there uh, that would be worthwhile thinking about it. Usually when the four Gospels are presented, they're presented as uh, the faces of cherubim. Uh, Matthew is the face of a lion. Mark the face of an ox. Luke the face of a man. And John the face of an eagle. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to hold off in two weeks. We come back and we, uh, we'll pick up and look at the Gospels. We can look at all four of them quickly. One of your assignments for two weeks from now is to read through John in one sitting and then try putting together an outline. I've given you a quick outline of the other three, but it's well worth your time if you make the outline. And then you can compare it to others. I know. And our, one of the things I did in seminary um, was I went to the library and I outlined the Gospels and then compared it to some of the books that were there because it gave me an idea of what's going on. It gives you an idea of it. Okay. Um, one last thing, you should realize that all of the New Testament books were written by 70 A.D. You will hear that they were written anywhere from 50 A.D. to maybe 100 A.D. Um, one of the key things that's always missing in a New Testament book is the destruction of Jerusalem. We don't look at that like they did. Destruction of Jerusalem was like 9-11 to us where all of a sudden things turned around new things started when J Jerusalem was destroyed it destroyed Judaism it had to adapt they no longer have yearly sacrifices anywhere and it was a sign that the Judaism was gone being supplanted by the, the church and none of the books mention it. The books that you think ought to mention, like Hebrews or Revelation, don't. So, Tony. Rectify what? Yeah, I mean, they, they look at it as a horrific event. Uh, and they have always been saying, next year in Jerusalem. Next year we're going to get back to Jerusalem and we will have a Messiah because everything 
in the Old Testament points to a physical city. Everything in the New Testament points to a spiritual city. And even the writer of Hebrews says they were looking for a country, not their own. They were looking for a spiritual city. So that's how out of, out of the, uh, the background that they have, not accepting Christ as Messiah or the New Testament as part of a canon, that's the best they can do. Other questions? Good timing. I just ran out of my sparkling water. That's what was in there. I was waiting till the last to tell you. <laughs> Maybe I should have checked it before I drank it. Who knows what put it? <laughs> Any other questions? I mean, that gave you a lot of history, but. Part of it was like from the English Study Bible. Part of it is from um, other books that I've read that gave the intertestimonial period. Well, the, there's like uh, the Reformation Study Bible. Uh, there's books on the on that period which I don't remember. Some of this is just written, stored up here, and it comes out. I mean. I can't come up with one right now. Excuse me? No, this is straight history. As he's not going to contradict what came th came through. It's you know that 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 brings up that good question. Will the Holy Spirit tell you something that's not true? No. So why do you need him if you also have a a good reference? He'll simply enlighten and, and say, yes, that's good. So he, uh, he, he says, don't ask me that. It's in this book. I just can't remember the names of the book. Maybe what I'll do is spend some time looking through my library of 15 books. Fine. <laughs> Now there there are books that talk about the uh, the Bible and its culture, the Bible and its history, and they will take up this period. A handbook of Bible history. So I can't remember the specific author right now. Was, However you want to make an outline. I mean, some people use A1 and other two circles, you know. The way you want to make an outline is okay. That's, that's fine. Be creative. Be yourself. I'm not going to put you into a box. 
Until you die, then we put you in a box. <laughs> you, okay, Sydney, you didn't have another question. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you. We recognize your providential work in history. You know, emperors rose and fell. Emperors tried to do things and, and change and make their impact. But all of it was really you simply preparing the ground for the gospel, for its proclamation, for its increase, for its propagation. And you're doing the same with us. Thank you that we know this history and, and can look back on it. But if ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to understand our own history just as much. And therefore, we ask that you would take what is from you and solidify it in our hearts and minds, that it may be useful to us in understanding your word and glorifying your name. For we ask it in Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.